Who is the audience? And if you can always keep your audience in mind, it's much easier to think through how you do it. So if you're an athlete and you're really struggling with your coach, it's not just thinking about what information do you want to get over to that coach. It's thinking about what's the coach want to hear? How are they going to respond best to you? And so always keeping who you're chatting to in mind is really helpful. And that will work across any type of communication. Hello and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast with me, Steve Ingham. Now, this podcast is about exploring the experiences, concepts and insights from the world of performance. And in each episode, I'll be speaking to people who've been there and done it, researched aspects of performance in real depth or have supported others to aspire. And it's my hope that you'll find something interesting here to develop your philosophies, work and maybe how you live your life. If you're enjoying these discussions and fancy supporting us, then it would be amazing if you could leave an honest review on iTunes. It really helps us reach more people and shares the messages further. Equally, whatever platform you're listening on, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube and so on, then please do press subscribe. This episode's guest is performance psychologist Dr Josie Perry. Now Josie has a successful consultancy service supporting endurance athletes, golfers, tennis players, but she also has a rich background in communications. Originally a journalist, director of communications and public relations, Josie converted to psychology. But what was fascinating about this interview was about the fusion of the two subjects of psychology and with that human behaviour, influencing and development, but also with the principles of communication. But I would say with that comes human behaviour, influencing and development. I caught up with Josie just a few days after the launch of her book, Performing Under Pressure, which we also dive into. A very warm welcome to the podcast, Josie Perry. Thank you for having me. So congratulations on your book release, which was just last week, was it? Uh, A few weeks ago, Performing Under Pressure. I'm really keen to ask you about that, but how did the launch go? Oh, it was lovely. It was really nice to kind of see so many old friends who came along to support, but also to meet lots of people who are just really genuinely interested in being able to perform better in their sports. So being able to talk about lots of different sports rather than just the ones you usually work in was a real treat. So I'd like to get to that at some point in the, the discussion today. 64 strategies to to go through. And they've all got some really cool names like brain drain and colourful breathing and confidence jar. So that in itself is intriguing, has hooked me in. and And how critical that is. It seems like it's such a, a topical issue at the moment. So I'd um, love to get into that. But would it be possible for you to just give us a bit of a hint about your background and your journey? Yeah, it's um, probably quite unusual. So I started off actually in journalism. I worked for CBS News in America for a little while. And my actual first day of work there was the first day the Monica Lewinsky story broke. And I kind of... I was a little kind of 
21-year-old tapping into this amazing office with just absolute craziness going on as everyone was trying to work out what this amazing story was. Um, and I don't think I really left the office for about three days. But it was Wow, what an induction. Best introduction you could ever have to journalism. It was phenomenal. And the guys and girls there that worked in that team were just amazing at looking after me. And I had a brilliant time for kind of six months internship over there. And I carried on working for them when I got back to the UK in their London bureau, which covers most of the world. And I did that um, as a freelancer for years whilst um, finishing my undergrad degree, doing my master's degree, um, and then also whilst doing some of my PhD, which was looking at... um, It's weird, isn't it? You spend years and years doing a PhD and you can't really remember it. (laughs) that long afterwards even though it took up your own mind I don't really remember life. what happened whilst I was doing it either <laughs> um, so I was looking at codes of ethics within journalism um, which obviously came up a lot through the Lewinsky scandal but how how do journalists still behave as gatekeepers when you've got people like spin doctors in a way which annoyingly is now completely out of date because when I was studying we didn't have social media and so actually we almost don't need journalists sometimes in the way Um, You've got politicians putting things straight out to the people that they want to vote for them. So my research was a bit out of date, I guess now, um, but a fascinating process to go through um, and really helped me understand communications, how journalism works and how to get messages across in an effective way. And so I took that into the communications world and I worked for some kind of big companies. I worked for Royal Mail in their communications team for the Department of Education, Department of Business on things like apprenticeships and really helping grow apprenticeships in the UK. And then my last corporate role was at Nuffield Health, where I was um, promoting hospitals, gyms um, and a much more healthier lifestyle. Wow. So that's quite a a varied background in itself. I mean, in terms of God, there's loads of topics there that I just want to dive straight into about like a code of ethics when we've got this Wagatha Christie, Colleen <laughs> Rooney thing breaking just recently about ultimately people policing their own mm. their own communications rather than the, depending upon the, the media to, to do that for them. Yeah, and we used to have this idea that um, journalists were watchdogs. They were the fourth estate. They were overseeing things. And if something went through the media, it had that sense of authenticity that a journalist who is fully qualified and has really investigated things has decided whether something is correct or not. And we just don't... We have journalists still doing some of that role, but we also have many people able to bypass it. So what's happened? Is that some... Are we in this age of fake news and just trying to grab attention now? What's happened? There's vast amounts of attention grabbing. And it's... We used to talk about newspapers being tomorrow's fish and chip paper. But sometimes stories don't even last kind of a day or two. It moves on so quickly. Um, So it is really fascinating to kind of to see those changes and see how how people deal with it. Um, And as we can see in politics, it's had a huge impact on the way um, we we trust people on on the the outcome of the whole of the UK. If we look at how Brexit's um, been dealt with and some of the, the the stories that were told to help people make their mind up over which way they would choose. So um, can I ask you about getting into journalism? Was this was before you went through higher education? Did you almost do that, that grafting internship, apprenticeship, getting those roles 
uh, at the, the bottom end of journalism if, in that way? Yeah, so I work, I, I did my undergraduate degree at Brunel University. Um, and due to a flaw on my part when I was filling out the forms, I meant to apply for a three year course and I put the wrong code down and applied for a four year course. <laughs> Um, which was a sandwich course, which involved two six-month placements. And I kind of figured, oh, well, let's roll with it and see what these placements might be like. And my first one was at the Home Office, working on the British Crime Survey, which was fascinating. And then my second one I got to do in America. So it was picking and applying for roles I would really enjoy. And this one at CBS News came up, and I very gratefully got it. So, yes, it was six months, and it was working for nothing, but it absolutely set me up um, and I thoroughly enjoyed it and it really helped me learn some skills of journalism and know that that was something I would like in my life going forward. Okay, so you, you've done some of the hard yards in in that internship, unpaid type work and then, uh, and then you've moved into a role there. Can I assume that the Nuffield Health role was also communications and uh, interpreting what that company had to offer and communicating it with the outside world. Yep. So it was I was director of communications there, um, and we we kind of had two main roles. So one was to promote well-being. So because we were a charity, although we actually had lots of private hospitals, our goal was for people not to be in them. We wanted them in the gyms, staying fitter and healthier, so they never needed to come into hospitals. Um, so we had that side of really trying to find ways to promote positive well-being and health and responsibility for keeping ourselves fit. But there was also a crisis element within there, because if you are running things like hospitals and gyms, stuff can go wrong. Um, and one particular element that was really interesting to work on, but awful for the ladies involved, was around breast implants. And there was an issue about, I think, 2011 where a manufacturer of breast implants had used the wrong type of silicon. And instead of using medical-grade silicon, they were using mattress-grade silicon. And these ladies' implants were leaking, and potentially causing cancer, and certainly worrying them that they were going to be having cancer. And so we had a big crisis that these ladies all had these implants, and they had no idea whether they had the ones that were dodgy or not. And that... They were coming to us desperately trying to get help to have them replaced. And so from a communications perspective, that's something fascinating to work on of how do you reassure people? How do you take the lead responsibly? And for us at Nuffield, because we were a charity, we were able to replace them all for nothing to to reassure these ladies. And from a reputational impact, that was really positive for the organisation. Wow. So I'm now thinking of parallels to... Any organisation who's who've got to make a, an uncomfortable decision, or they've got to act in a way that uh, is is doing the right thing, but not everybody's going to be happy about what's being communicated. I.e., receiving the news that you've got mattress grade silicon in a breast implant, uh, but you've got to communicate that in a in a good way. How do you approach that? I always think about this and I I do exactly the same when I'm doing kind of media interviews now as a sports psych but always at the top of whatever you're writing to plan for it who is the audience and if you can always keep your audience in mind it's much easier to think through how you do it so if you're an athlete and you're really struggling with your coach 
It's not just thinking about what information do you want to get over to that coach. It's thinking about what's the coach want to hear? How are they going to respond best to you? And so always keeping who you're chatting to in mind is really helpful. And that will work across any type of communication. Okay, that's a that's a very important foundational philosophy of of not just thinking about I just need to tell them better. I need to convey what's in my head uh, and imprint it upon somebody else's brain. This is about thinking about the other person and their needs and their hopes and their ambitions and their demands. Absolutely. We were talking before we started recording about how we met years ago on a performance for success course. And on that course, we did something called Spotlight, where you really start to learn about your own personality and your own characteristics but also did a lot of work of understanding other people's personality and their characteristics and how they might like to be approached for something. And it was a really useful exercise in thinking about this person likes to be approached in this way. I am going to get the best out of them. I'm going to get what I need if I go to them in a way that suits them. And that's a really valuable thing to take in the way you do anything. So if you're marketing your business, if you're trying to have a difficult conversation with somebody, how am I going to get the best out of this conversation? And you need some time to think through that and to plan it rather than kind of just being really angry about something and kind of going headstrong in and having to get your message across. But if you really think about what do I want from this conversation, then you can approach it in a much more effective way. Yeah, so it's almost imagining this conversation is going to go to perfectly well. This is it's going to be really successful. The person's going to buy into what I've got to say, and therefore, what would I need to be doing? How would I need to be approaching this in order to maximise the the success of this opportunity? Yeah, and it's it's setting the right things in place. So having time to have a full conversation, not sitting opposite somebody because that can feel very confrontational. So going for a walk with somebody is a great way to have a difficult conversation because you're you're not eyeballing each other. You're able to get your points across. Thinking through, is this somebody that loves loads of detail? Do they need to know I've done all of the research and that's why I've come up with this? Or is this somebody that's short and sharp and just needs a little bit of information? And if you really think through how you set up a situation and how do I communicate with them in the way that they are most likely to respond positively, you'll do much better. I, I set that up for uh, business recently where they're talking about giving feedback and having those difficult conversations. And, and one of the strategies that we talked about was going for a walk so that it's that non-confrontational, it's, you know, you're out and about, it's, it's a different tone to it, but equally making sure that that's a habit that you do regularly as opposed to let's Let's go for a walk, which is a way of introducing that this is going to be a difficult conversation. Yes, exactly. (laughs) It's that same conversation at work when somebody would knock on your door and say, can I have five minutes? Yeah. And I was always like, oh, no, they're going to tell me they're going to resign. (laughs) So, so yes, it needs to be part of your natural kind of habitat of what you do. But having difficult conversations on the phone can be really hard because so much communication is nonverbal. But finding ways to have difficult conversations in a way that works for that other person means you will both come out of it feeling much better about the situation. All right, so I've got completely sidetracked there. I asked you a question and then I'm diving into 
Wagatha Christie and how you have <laughs> difficult conversations and but but the nugget from that is to be thinking about the other person getting to their to their mind and who's the audience so um can I come back to you and finish that that conversation and journey because because this communication expertise that you have is fascinating and I'd love to to build on that but how did you bridge from there being a journalist at CBS News to being a sports psychologist so I, my sport's Ironman. I love Ironman racing. And I went over to Melbourne to do Ironman Melbourne. I think it was the first year they did it. And I, because I was working at Nuffield, I, um, I'd been training in 20 metre swimming pools in central London, which are all nice and flat and chlorinated. And I stood on the beach in Frankston, which is where they do the swim. And the waves were phenomenal. I was absolutely terrified. And even my husband, who's an Aussie, was uh, not particularly keen to go and jump into those waves. And the commentator said, you can't control those waves. You can control how you feel about them. And it was genuinely the first time in about 10 years of racing that I'd actually thought about kind of my mental approach to sport. It hadn't just been about working really hard and doing lots of training. I'd really started to think that my mind might have a little bit of power over what I was doing. And it really, really struck with me. And when I got back to the UK, I started looking into sports psychology and I wasn't having a brilliant time at work. And I was kind of going into that, is this it for the next 30 years? What else am I going to do? Um, and it, it just really ate away at me. And in the end, I decided I, I wanted to do something different. And there was a university nearby that was doing a conversion course in psychology and I figured it wasn't that great a leap because I could take a year, do the conversion course. If I didn't want to go into sports psychology, I would actually just be a much better communicator because I would understand how people change. I would understand behaviours. And that would make me better as a communications director anyway, so I could go back into that world. Or I then have this opportunity to see whether sports psychology is for me. And I loved it. Um, and so I signed up for another master's um, at Roehampton in sport and exercise psychology. Um, and from that, did my stage two, which I finished about a year and a half ago. So oh, that's, so that's interesting that you're exploring a branch that, that was a personal passion. And a, a lot of people will say that anyone who's studying sports psychology or psychology as a whole, they've got something that they are, they're trying to overcome or get, come to terms with. But you're exploring it, but also reconciling the effort that you're putting in there around, actually, this could still be useful. This could be an allied profession that could just add value to my role if if nothing further comes from it. Yeah. And I mean, I agreed with my husband that I'd never had a gap year. So this was going to be my gap year that I was I was going to learn something. It wasn't a massive risk. And it I, I could afford to do it. I could take that year out and see where it took me. I think if I'd have been in a different financial situation, it would have been, I probably wouldn't have been brave enough to do it. So then what comes from that? So you're starting to do your, your stage two. So you're becoming serious about becoming a sports psychologist at a chartered level. And are you still working? Are you balancing the two? So whilst I was doing my master's in sport and exercise psychology, I worked at UK Sport because they had a job in their communications team and it was three days a week. So it fitted in perfectly with the master's. And I, it was much kind of lower level than I was used to working at, but it meant I could use the skills I already had 
in a way that I could also learn about elite sport. And so I thought that would be a really good opportunity to learn how the system works, that the athletes I was going to be working with would be within, um, and use the skills I already had, but as a nice kind of transition role uh, and to develop some skills in the sports area. So I did that for a year and a half, I guess, um, until my business started to build up that I, I needed to just be fo- fully focused on my own business. That sounds really smart and quite strategic about where you're going, what you need to be developing, that understanding of the broader context of elite sport, filling in some of those gaps so that you're equipped to, to make the transition fully. Is that, is that something you're quite mindful of, of, of strategizing? That's an awful word, isn't it? I, I use another <laughs> word, of, of planning what you're doing. In retrospect, it might look like that. Um, and it did work out very effectively. I think I was just really lucky that the girl that had done the job before me there happened to go on secondment to something else, and I happened to see that role. So I was looking for kind of part-time jobs in sport, but that was actually the ideal job, and it happened to come up at the time I was looking. I, th- I think a lot, we look back, and in hindsight, it looks really strategic. Um, a lot often seems to just come down to luck. Yeah. Okay. Or, or that that you were actively searching, and at that point you thought, "Why not?" Which is yeah. actually those, those two factors take bravery, take initiative, in that sense. Most definitely. And I have a real sounds really cheesy a real passion for being brave. So I read an article a few years ago that I will never forget, and it was it was just a regular internet article about a girl who was a journalist, a freelance journalist. And she said she normally set her goals at the beginning of each year to get, say, 10 great articles published. And she changed her mindset one year and changed her goal so that her goal was to get 100 pieces rejected. So she entirely turned it on her head. But because her goal was to get 100 pieces rejected, that meant she needed to kind of submit maybe 200 pieces and submit those pitches to places she'd never considered pitching before. And she said it was a phenomenally successful year because actually quite a lot of those pictures were taken up and she got far more pieces published. She made far more money and she got them published in places she'd never have dreamt of trying before. And I really loved that idea of turning something on its head to really try and massively improve. And so a couple of years ago after reading that, I created a brave list and it was every time There was something I wanted to do, but I wasn't brave enough to do it. I wrote it on that list and I did it because I wanted to see how much would succeed. And I did an analysis at the end of the year and 47% of the things that I had tried had come off. And so that would be things like applying for jobs that I know I didn't really have a hope of getting or contacting athletes or organisations I would love to work with, but I didn't really feel like I was developed enough to do it or pitching articles that I didn't necessarily know whether I had the background to write. And so I really believe in that kind of being brave and trying something that might well be outside of your comfort zone. Often that will come off. I love that. That is brilliant. (laughs) Of, Of focusing on the rejection as an indicator that you're, I suppose, pushing the boundary, you're being bolder and that you have an edge or you're exploring new domains in that sense. It, it sounds a bit like, I can't remember the TED talk now, it might have been Tim Ferris about the not to do list. And so you're being quite clear about 
about the side that side of things as opposed to putting the pressure on yourself that's that's lovely i like that and 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 also about finding opportunities for yourself that understanding rejection is part of it but confronting that in a healthy way and and the amount of times i've certainly i've scrolled through twitter and i've seen stuff come up or i've seen something that really piques my interest and i'm like oh i'd love to be involved in that and then kind of go oh no that's too hard or they won't want me and all of those fears and doubts come to your mind actually i now email myself those things so they are sitting in my inbox with a prompt of do something about it so you're okay that's interesting you're emailing yourself as most, in most of my emails are to myself <laughs> and then I have that thing where I see a new email pop up and I get really excited and I realize it's just me um, <laughs> we've got 100 emails to respond to and it's all from it's me, me. <laughs> but I use my inbox as my to-do list and so right. And I hate having things in my inbox, so it really pushes me to to get stuff done. Um, so if I have emailed myself an opportunity of something, I am much more likely to go ahead and do whatever it takes um, to get that out of my inbox and get it done. So focusing on the rejection side of things, and that, or just at least very much flipping the the mentality around, that that feels a little bit like. I think what Brené Brown has, has recently talked about is who's in your inner circle, who you, who are you listening to uh, in terms of critical feedback. And I think the analogy she gives is, is I've written a book and it's got a thousand positive Amazon reviews. And then there's, there's a, a 50 people that don't like it. And ultimately, I suppose 50 people that probably aren't the target audience as you've sort of illustrated. Um, but focusing on thinking about who, who's, voice and view whether it's your own or others am I going to listen to as opposed to what is now quite a a noisy world isn't it and you've got to filter quite hard when somebody responds badly to something you put out into the ether actually I'm not always sure people responding badly is a bad thing so I'm working with an organization at the moment who told me they've just published a new marketing campaign and their goal for the campaign was five criticisms because they wanted to be controversial and a way to be controversial was actually to get people talking and to annoy some people because then it would be showing that there was a debate going on about what they're doing and they're working in an area where debate needs to be had. And I really like that approach, that sometimes we have to force ourselves to get outside of our comfort box and trying to attract some criticism might be a way to do that. And would you then advise another strategy about about coping with that criticism as well because it might be nice to sort of establish some of those goals up front but when they come in you often feel like a loss and we are you know we're hardwired for that loss too so maybe when you're setting your goals though it's about just as you said who's your kind of support who do you trust who do you believe in you're not going to want those criticisms necessarily from certain people that are your your inner circle elements um Or the coping mechanism might be that you expect a certain amount of criticism and that's okay. If it tips into too much, then you're going to need to do something about it and take on board that criticism. But I think one of the really valuable things I learned doing my stage two was about how to take feedback. And I use, there's a a form, oh, it's awful, I can't remember who wrote it, but there's a form for sports psychology consultants 
that you can ask your athletes and your clients to complete at the end of a set of sessions. And I actually find the feedback I get on that is incredibly helpful. So it's not going to be nasty feedback because they're people you've worked with for quite a long time and you've built up a great rapport. They're not going to tell you horrible things, but they are going to give you some really valuable ways that you can improve and do your job much better in future. So you know, actually, I find that really helpful. And and there's an implied aspect here when you're, I mean, journalism is not necessarily a nine to five job, um, communications. And if you're balancing study with work, uh, if you're, if you're doing your stage two training whilst also working, uh, and you're doing Ironman training, there's an implied out excellence in your time management. <laughs> I, I also, just to really add into that, um, the day I started my business and started my stage two training, I also started IVF, but knew that there was only about a 5% chance that IVF would work. And we got one round on, on the NHS and we're like, we'll take it, we'll try. It'll never work. But, it, but we, know, we then know we've tried. Um, and I was incredibly fortunate that it did work. And so adding into stage two and training and um, trying to run a business, I then also had my daughter nine months later. Um, so it's been a fascinating process of trying to, to have a baby and do all of that at the same time. <laughs> so I'm now hearing overload. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, or, or certainly stretching yourself in different ways so and and they say that if you want something done give it to a busy person but how what give us some hints and clues about how you manage each of those competing demands not that i'm calling your child a competing demand but uh she can be um i i had an amazing supervisor for my stage two who tell us who it was oh tim holder oh brilliant yeah, we so I, I really, really lucked out. I, um, I spoke to some established sports psychologists before I started stage two and asked who they would recommend. And they all recommended Tim. And he, I met him, and um, I haven't told him this, I feel a bit guilty if he listens, but I met him and I thought, I don't know if I'll get on with him and I don't know if we're on the same page. And I think that's exactly what I need. I don't want someone that's going to tell me, oh, you're doing great. I want someone that's really going to challenge me because this is a whole new area and I'm starting 15 years later than everybody else that I'm going to be competing against as a sports psych. So I really valued that I knew I was going to get somebody that would push me. And Tim kind of just took everything in his stride that I was having a baby in the middle of it all and um, that I was running my business, not in a traditional way, I guess, of trying to get into sports clubs and working for them to get lots of um, evidence and hours, but that I was going to be running it as a sole practitioner, working with individuals, um, trying to do, trying to bring in my communications work. So some of my work is still, and it was certainly more when I started, training athletes to communicate better in the media. So I'd done a lot of training before in business of getting CEOs and chairmen and women to do things like select committee hearings in the House of Commons or to do things like you and yours or watchdog TV shows and deal with those difficult situations and transferring that as to how do athletes deal with the media was something I was very skilled in. I could just bring it into the sports arena. So he was really okay with me being able to bring in my previous experience to what I was doing. So that definitely helped. Um, it helped I had a daughter who slept really, really well. Um, and I was able to get quite a lot of work done 
in her naps. Um, simple things, not simple because it was expensive, but we bought a treadmill and put it in the garage so that when my daughter slept, I could take her monitor, stick it on the top of the treadmill and I could go and get in a 45-minute session. So it was really using all the time that I had well, I guess. Um, and to be, I've put her into nursery two days a week from the age of four months, which actually was is absolutely fine for her. I'm not sure I'd necessarily do it again, but it meant I could then get back into working effectively. And because I work a lot with individual athletes and I work with athletes all over the world, they really value the fact that I do Skype sessions in the evening. And so when she's in bed, I can do two sessions in the evening and I can still continue my business in a way that works really well for my athletes, but means I can work effectively too. I like that though, the fact that you're not just thinking uh, who's going to be an echo chamber type supervisor. You've got somebody who might provoke you, uh, but also accept the broad background that you've got and you bring as a strength. Yeah, so what I really loved is that he treated me as an equal, even though in sports psychology, he's got a million years of experience and he's phenomenally expert at it. He, when we sat in supervisory sessions, he did treat me as an equal, but he would ask me tough questions, which I would curse afterwards and then realise how valuable they'd been. OK, this sounds so really interesting background, but also I'm, I'm hearing about the, the the mindset of stretching yourself and... Mm-hmm. Whether that's from a training point of view, clearly you're not just choosing a soft event. You're you're pushing yourself, taking on some early w- intense work experience, Monica Lewinsky infused internships, and and then pushing yourself into to exploring your career. Do, have you got a sense of where this bravery or this optimism of and spirit of exploration comes from? Um, I guess my parents always made me quite independent. But no, I don't... I I think it's fascinating when you have children, you start noticing characteristics and you start noticing where things come from and you start looking at, has that come from her dad or has that come from me? And I find that really interesting that I love the fact my daughter is very brave in some situations and I really watch that. And then in other situations, she can be very timid and... It's really interesting to kind of watch where those characteristics might be coming from. So let me ask you a little bit about the lessons learned from your communication background and how you built those in for athletes to communicate with the media, um, but also some of your key lessons about how you're going about communication. Because I, I tend to feel that a lot of science-trained or even coach-trained uh, people that they don't tend to communicate very well and whilst also being trained on communication they communicate from a sort of a logical deductive point of view uh, or about observations as opposed to actually conveying a message absolutely um, so I'd be really keen to hear your kind of key thoughts about what you've learned over the years and how what really lands for people what really works for people I found it fascinating. When I started my psychology conversion course, I was getting feedback from my essays. And I would have comments on the essays about my writing style, negative ones, because my my sentences weren't long enough and my paragraphs weren't long enough. 
And I was fuming because I know the evidence from the communications literature that people respond to very different length sentences. And actually an ideal sentence should probably only be about eight words long. And the way that we are developing through social media shows that we have very short attention spans. And so we need to keep people really focused on points. I I read on, um, I think it was Tim Ferriss recently, talking about how no email should have more than five points, five paragraphs to it. And then somebody sent me an email that I had to send out as part of a project I was working on. And it was about three pages long. And I was like, I'll send it because I'm being told to, but nobody is going to respond to this. And very few people did. Because it's just too much. It's too unwieldy. People are used to short, sharp points now. And if we write in a way that people want to see, they're much more likely to read it. And we're much more likely to get out what we need from it. So I think that was that was really interesting that the academic world likes to put things in a huge amount of context with a lot of background in vast amounts of detail. But that's not going to get into the mindset of the athlete, say, that is reading it. Yeah, that's interesting from a point of view of academic publishing, for example. If it says 2,000 words for a journal article, people fill up the 2,000 words as opposed to, well, it only actually really needs 1,500, so that will do. And what is read is the abstract, which is about 150 words. And there are some people that are really skilled. Alex Hutchinson is brilliant at it, of taking lots of academic journals and pulling together in short articles the crux, what you actually need to know, what it's telling us. And people that can do that have a huge amount of power because the academics themselves are not getting read widely and most of the journal articles are stuck behind a paywall or in a library that 99% of the population can't access. But people like Alex Hutchinson and the magazines that are taking research seriously and translating it can do that really well and people are actually listening to them. Or like Jan Lemieux making his infographics, which he gets oh, some griefs for. A lot of people have criticised him over the years, but, but ultimately he's saying, well, I'm offering a solution and a strategy for people to consume the information in a different way. And without being too harsh for some of those, it's a cut and paste of some of the, of the words and some illustration to offer a softer way of presenting the information. But there are... Twitter gives us a brilliant um, insight into how people consume stories, media, information. And if there is a photo on Twitter, people engage with it far more than they do if it's just words. So you see an infographic, that sticks in your mind. You're much more likely to engage with it, think about it, see what you might do with it, than if you see a, a full paragraph of 200 characters. And I really find when I, I write quite a bit for different magazines, I write for Cycling Weekly, Golf World, Runner's World. When I'm trying to get insight from experts, I have a few that I go to regularly because they know how to explain things in a lay athlete's terms. They know how to make it understandable in a way that somebody can go and do something with that information and will change their practice because of it. And there are a huge amount that I just avoid completely now because I need to do so much rewriting of what they say because they have to give so much context and they have to put it in such academic terms that it's meaningless to the regular athlete. So too much context and academic terms. So they're adhering to the scientifically sound 
and precise point as opposed to maybe a metaphor or the simple three-word version? What are the common mistakes that you're seeing there? So having to caveat everything, and I absolutely understand why academics coming from a scientific background need to caveat things so much. But people are going to consume things in 140, 200 characters. So it needs to be, what do I need to do about this piece of information? There's a study being done. How does this impact me? Or if you're a coach, how does this impact my athletes? What can I do about it? That's what they want. They want the headline with a, how does this affect me? They don't need to know the background to it. They don't need to know what the hypothesis was. They don't need to know the research methods. They don't need an awful lot of the discussion or the critiques within it. They need to know what does this mean for me? Yeah, certainly when I was, I did, I was on the REF impact panel. So this was the research excellence framework. I was assessing impact and a lot of people have just lost sight of the relevance of their research in the world. And because it became so uh, deductive and caveated that it was this effect for this sort of population to this level of probability uh, in this uh, circumstance, in this moment of time, sorry. Yes. (laughs) And and actually wasn't a case of, and and the implications of this research are that you could, this might, and and actually taking that leap of faith of, of communicating what they had to offer. Yeah, and I... I've done a piece of research recently for a charity called Silverfit and it is run by an amazing lady called Eddie Brocklesby who is 77 I think. She still does Ironman racing. She's recently just done Race Across America Um, but her whole charity is set up on the fact that exercise can keep us healthier for longer and in a more enjoyable way because we make friends through it and it helps deal with loneliness. And we've been doing a piece of research around retirement and what the process of retirement means to us in physical activity terms. And I think we read 302 journal articles to get to an eight-page document that tells us how do we communicate better with retirees about the benefits of exercise, how do we help them overcome their barriers, and how do we help them highlight what might motivate them to do more. And that actually came down to a table at the end. And that's what's valuable for a charity to go, right, what do we need to do right now to get more retirees exercising? So all of those caveats have been stripped out. Hopefully, if you've you've got 302 articles, you've got a wide enough participation re-rate that you are doing the general elements there. But we came out with some great ideas and some great stuff with it, but in a way that at least people can go and use actively rather than being stuck behind a paywall. And surely that's real impact. Yeah, it sounds like you're, again, you're thinking about the audience, uh, but also you're in touch with their need and their wants. And and you don't want them to learn necessarily. You want them to move to action. Yes. And it's quite tricky sometimes when you're working on things, particularly when I'm writing articles for magazines. I'll write a beautifully, well, I think it's beautifully crafted paragraph and it gives loads of background and information. And then I always write far too much and have to cut down massively. And that's the stuff that has to go because it it might be beautifully crafted, 
but it doesn't mean someone's going to do something differently as a result of reading it. And if that's what our purpose in writing that article is, is to educate somebody or to help them do something better or to perform at a higher level, that's what needs to be in that information and that's what you need to put there. I think there's such a default. I mean, I fall into that all the time about we've just launched our online course and all I want to talk about is what are you going to get? What are the nuts and bolts, the hour long or the number of or the the specific word count almost but it's it's actually you just got to focus a little bit more on what's the problem you're trying to solve and that 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 creates an emotional response telling almost a bit of a small story of you're here at the moment this is where you need to get to and here's the here's the way the path forward and stories are so important when I worked in communications and journalists were always asking for case studies which was always a kind of a real hassle to try and get and it's like, do they really need them? But then you work as a journalist and absolutely those stories bring everything to life. That's what people remember. So I remember the very first um, workshop I did as a sports trainee sports psych and it was down with Chichester Triathlon Club. And in the audience of the adults we were working with, there was a guy who did not look like a triathlete. He was a big guy. And we were talking about mantras and self-talk. And I've done lots of stuff on mantras and self-talk since and it's the technical this is how you write yours this is what it should feel like this is why you do it this is the evidence what people remember is the story I tell of the guy that was in the audience that day in that workshop and he talked about five six years before that he had been incredibly overweight very unhealthy his doctor had told him he probably wouldn't make it to 30 unless he sorted his life out he was a young guy And he had gradually turned himself, his his life around. He changed his diet. He'd got much fitter. He'd been going to the gym and he was doing his very first triathlon. And he was hating it. It was really, really tough. But his dad had come to watch him. And he said he remembered that when he was on the run and he was on that bit where he just didn't want to do any more, he ran past his dad. And he overheard his dad say to the guy next to him, that's my son. And the pride and the passion and everything he heard in his dad's voice meant there was no way he couldn't finish that race. And every time he's done a race ever since, his mantra's become, that's my son. And that's what you remember about how to write a mantra that works for you. Because the emotion is within that. The, the family relationship within that. The, the phrase that really gets you in your stomach. That means the athletes I tell that story to are able to write a much more effective mantra than the athletes that I've given a long list of this is what your mantra needs to include. So stories are really, really powerful. It's interesting, isn't it? As soon as you start presenting facts, people people will switch into evaluation mode and judgment. Yeah. And and that logos aspect of our uh, our brain will, will fire up. And we, we get into that academic snobbery of critique. When you're telling that story, I'm, I'm feeling imagery... I've got emotive feelings, empathy, connections with my own family and that the pride that comes from from a breakthrough moment and as opposed to bloke lost some weight, finished a race. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so stories are really, really powerful. And part of what I talk about in the book is about a whole focus on self-awareness and knowing your own story. 
And I think that's really important when we've got so much social media and comparison going on. Every run you do, every bike you do is up on Strava and you can compare how you did with other people. Every time you look at Instagram, you see somebody looking incredibly fit in the gym and you beat yourself up because you missed your session that day. If you get really self-aware of what works for you, of your story, of where you've come from and where you want to go to, it's much easier to stay focused on what you're achieving and what you need to work on than get suckered into what's going on with everybody else. So in that sense, and, and I haven't read the book yet, uh, <laughs> I certainly will be getting it, but the, is, this, is this a pressure from the point of view of some of the internal pressures that you put upon yourself and managing those more effectively? So there are a lot of internal pressures. I work a lot with younger athletes and I find, wow, probably about 90% of them have perfectionism issues. And it's one of the first things when parents phone me and say, my son or daughter's got this going on. They start to tell me the story and I'll say, are they a perfectionist? And the parents instantly say, oh, yes. Um, And so that causes a huge amount of kind of those internal pressures, those internal comparisons with others, but also comparisons with something that they are never going to be able to achieve because it doesn't exist. But then there are also the expectations and pressures from the outside world. And they may, we may logically see a coach pushing them and telling them how well they could do as a positive thing, but they build that into something else where they can't achieve it or something else they could possibly fail at. And their parents telling them how much they support them and seeing that their parents are driving them to competitions or their parents are investing in them, they see that as yet another pressure that I can't let my parents down. So we internalise lots of those pressures and stresses in all sorts of ways and they come from all sorts of places. And so why did you write the book? I'm getting a hint that that you're confronting a number of issues and cases that that started to motivate you to build a resource pack is it is that what started that process for you and to be honest when I started my master's I read through all the kind of the reading list and then I did some amazoning to try and find almost a DIY sports psych book and nothing that I could find existed So there were lots of great books that we used as course texts that tell you lots of the issues that are going on and they tell you some of the interventions you could take and there are more now, certainly. But there was nothing... When we came to do the module on applied psychology, we got taught four techniques and the the kind of imagery, relaxation, goal setting. I can't even remember the other one we did. So it was really limited on kind of what you would actually do with an athlete if you wanted to be an applied sports psychologist. And you might read a journal article that tells you about something like what-if planning, but then you'd have to really scrabble and really go and look at, well, what is it? How do you do it? What's the evidence for it? And so for me, this book was about actually bringing loads of those interventions together, but showing where you would use them. So I took the nine most common reasons that athletes come to see me. And that's from the years of now working in sports psychology of why, what's the presenting issue that somebody usually comes with? Maybe 5% of the athletes I see. So I, not even that. I can think of two athletes that have come to see me with no barriers to their success. They just want to be the absolute best they can be. And so they want to learn as many skills as they can so they can do that. 
Everybody else comes because they've got some kind of issue that's holding them back. And so this kind of takes those nine main issues, looks at psychologically why they occur and what's going on so we can really start to understand ourselves in them. And then at the end of each chapter, suggests 10 to 15 different techniques that you can find at the back of the book that can help you deal with those. So it's written for coaches or for trainee sports psychologists or for people working in the field that want to understand much more about the psychology of athletes to really understand it for themselves and to perhaps be able to suggest things. And do you have any go-to strategies or the most commonly used? So in the chapter headings around embracing competition, building confidence, sustaining strong support systems, improving concentration and focus, uh, developing emotional control, becoming braver, that sounds like you, uh, pushing (laughs) harder, learning from competition and coping with setbacks and injury. Uh, Obviously, those are going to be more relevant at different times. But do you have a sense of this is one of the most common strategies or the most effective strategies that most people will need at, uh, at a given moment? I guess the one I start off with, with every new athlete I start working with, is goal setting. Because if we know what we're working towards, it's much easier to put everything else in place. And that process of goal setting and performance profiling around it really helps us see what we need to focus on physically and mentally. What I've started doing much more now uh, since reading Simon Sinek's book, Know Your Why, is almost going behind those goals of why somebody wants to achieve those goals in the first place. And if you really understand why you're there, it's much easier to stay stuck to those goals, to write goals that match you. So I find athletes struggle the most when they don't set their own goals. So when they're younger and their parents are setting out exactly what they expect them to do in which competitions and how they expect them to score or to win. Or when you've got athletes, I work with quite a few who go over to America on scholarships and their goals aren't their own then. Their goals are whoever the coach for that university is and what they want to be doing in NCAA. And they really struggle then because it's they're not following their own path. They're not doing something they're passionate about. They're following what somebody else is telling them to do. So at least at that point, taking it back to, well, why are you on that scholarship? Why are you in America? What's the big picture for you? Okay, you've got four years of having to do what this coach needs you to do. What's that going to do for you afterwards? And so having, at that point, much longer-term goals that people are focused on can then help them kind of stay on track and stay more positive. And so it's almost start with what? And then build the why in that sense. Yeah, often it's quite a circular conversation because people haven't thought about their why. So it's a much easier conversation to start with, what do you want to do? Why are you here? What's your your big goal? And then we draw it back into, sometimes their why is really evident within a goal. But sometimes their goal can be, somebody the other day, I want to be top 500 in the world. And that's a very arbitrary goal, particularly when it talks about numbers and it involves other people because you can't control who else is competing in your sport in the world. But then you can take it back to, well, why do you want to be top 500? What would that mean to you? Why would that make you happy? What would that mean you've achieved in your sport? And that helps us then sometimes shape 
much more effective goals. And can I ask you from a personal point of view, if your journey into psychology came from looking at those waves in Australia, uh, what's one strategy that's got a personal attachment for you that stands you in good stead and gets you cued into the right frame of mind when you're under pressure? I think expecting things to be difficult. And I was chatting to a coach this morning who was talking about often their athletes, they know they have to do all the the physical training and they know that's going to be tough, but they really bury their heads in the sand when it comes to the mental side of it. And you just wing it and you hope you'll be okay on the day. And in some sports, that's absolutely fine. But in a lot of them, particularly things like, say, a marathon or golf, when you're out there for hours and hours, we can't wing it. We need to have really prepared really well, have everything in place, which gives us confidence when we get there anyway. But expect to have tough times means we can prepare for tough times so that we can cope with them a lot better. Because if we expect a marathon to go brilliantly we're going to be absolutely thrown at 20 miles when it goes pear-shaped. If we expect that at 20 miles, this is usually where I suffer. So at this point, I am going to smile at every person I see because I know smiling makes my perception of effort decrease. I am going to have a caffeine gel because I know the caffeine will help me and it will give me something to focus on. I am going to have a message written on my gel from one of my children because that message will make me feel better and it will remind me of the fact that I go out to do my running because it makes my kids proud of me. So there you're, you're employing three psychological strategies very simply by planning for knowing that you're going to have tough times. And I think that's that realisation that every race you do, if you are trying to perform at your best, is going to be difficult. You're not jogging round on a run you're really trying your best, you're pushing yourself to your absolute limits, it is going to hurt, it's going to be uncomfortable. You, you, you have to expect that. But if you plan for it and you have kind of a strategy in your back pocket, you're able to push forward much better. Is that a bit like the, the strategy of almost focusing on the rejections, but also what might come from those rejections? You know, the, the hundred publication submissions that get rejected, thinking it's going to be tough, but I'm going to have a strategy about, about coping with that but, yeah. and, and then turning those into a positive. So I hadn't thought about it that way, but yes, it makes perfect sense. I, I think coming back to the Ironman bit as well, when you've done enough of something and when you've got evidence and experience of it, you know you come out of the dark times. So in an Ironman, everybody has a bad moment, many bad moments usually. But if you're able to kind of go, yep, this is a low, I was expecting this, 15 minutes, I'll feel fine again. So I'll have my gel, it'll help me have a boost. But as soon as I'm going down that hill on the other side, I will feel better. So being able to see the positives that come with it and knowing that rejection or that bad moment is just a moment, it's much easier to see the big picture and to see that I have to suck this up right now, but it will get better. I, I sound, it sounds to, to me to a certain extent that you're, you've got quite a similar mindset to me, that you're you're quite brave. You're quite. Um, you, you feel the pain and do it anyway. And that you, but but also you've got strategies for dealing in all sorts of personalities, different scenarios, different circumstances. Circumstantial because that, things will change over the time. But but 
being able to positively tune those into a cope uh, strategy to move forward. Um, is that is that something that would that be a, a reasonable observation? Yeah, I think so. Um, it is like so. When I thought about the book, one of the titles I was thinking about it was around a toolbox and a toolkit. So that when you're struggling with anything, whether it's in sport, in your competition or in day-to-day life, you can physically open that toolkit and you can pull out what you need. Um, And you've got some experience to know that that is what you need. Uh, Okay, so this is interesting from the point of view that you've gone from journalism to sports psychology. You're now creating a resource for people to, to perform under a level of pressure. Can I ask you a bit about the the pressures that a lot of people are finding now is is to develop some of their own consultancy and possibly a side hustle so that they are they have greater responsibility for their own destiny their own income as opposed to perhaps dependent upon an employer and can i ask you about some of the strategies that you've used in terms of communicating what you do and offering that that might be different from your standard sports psychologist that advertises goal setting and imagery, for example. Um, yeah, I found it interesting. I went to a, to a lecture at the British Psychological Society the other night and I was chatting to a clinical psych there who works within the NHS. And she was saying, but as a private practitioner, how on earth do you get your, your clients, your patients? Um, you must have to do a huge amount of marketing. And I was like, I've never marketed Everybody, because I think because I developed the business slowly, so I was two days a week to start with, I'm up to three, I'm going four from Christmas. And it it hasn't felt like a pressure to have to grow in the same way that you would if you set up from scratch. So I think that's why doing things as a side hustle can be quite good because you really get a feel of whether something is going to work and whether you need to take that leap. And then you, you, you can do it in quite a safe way. Um. And I've been lucky that I had the media training side as part of what I'm doing. And I also write a lot for magazines. So if I've got a quiet time, I'll just pitch much more to magazines and I can fill up my, my space. So, so having different elements of my business has been really beneficial. But also being, I think I've been much, because my background in media, I don't find talking to the media scary And I often find sports psychologists and other practitioners do. And so I will often get some fantastic opportunities that are passed to me by other sports psychologists because they don't want to take that risk within the media. Um, But it is doing those kind of things that really extends your reputation. And you can see it when you have a website. So I did BBC Breakfast just over a year ago and I instantly had 200 new Twitter followers and I saw my website hits go up massively. I put out a press release for something last week and we had 400 hits on the website straight away. So if you are brave enough to do media things and talk externally, it can be really beneficial for your business. Okay, so there was an expectations, back to expectations of getting those right, about time and growing your reputation over time as opposed to an immediate expectation on yourself of it's all going to just trigger upwards um but being equally being brave or at least comfortable skilled acclimatized to that pressure of of being comfortable sitting on a sofa 
BBC Breakfast, even though as, as enchanting as Louise Minchin and, and co are, that you know that there's a camera feeding that down to a two million people on the end. Six million people I discovered afterwards, which I was really pleased I didn't know about beforehand. What's the difference between two and four? I know. Know, six. <laughs> um, I was just only in the cab afterwards I looked and I was like, wow, I'm glad I didn't know that. Um, so, so I think doing those kind of things is really, really beneficial. Okay, so that's interesting then that you're talking about having different elements to your consultancy business. like Almost as if like... the environment out there is a bit volatile. You don't know where the bookings are going to come in. You can't control aspects of that. And maybe talking about having different avenues to sustain you over time. Is that right? Yeah. So when you're starting out, particularly, you don't really know what's going to work. You're kind of going down an alleyway with not knowing what's out there necessarily or what's going to be popular. So as almost a safety requirement, it felt like if I had some avenue streams coming in from different areas, I could then really flex, um, build up my business in the areas that I knew would work. Wouldn't necessarily always be the areas I really wanted to work in, but I could make sure I had enough coming in from different places. So what are those elements for you? So for me, I think there's kind of three real elements. One is the bread and butter of being a sports psychologist, so the one-to-one work. Um, And that's what I really, really love doing most is working one to one with athletes or performers to to help them perform at their best and to enjoy it as much as possible. But then I also do writing work. So I write specifically for lots of magazines like Cycling Weekly, Runners World, Men's Fitness, Golf World, and trying to explain elements around sports psychology but in language that will really be used by amateur athletes who can kind of pick it up and run with it and use it and then the other element is taking that work from my previous life and media training so I've recently been media training some athletes from a big university so that when they are approached by journalists or asked to do interviews they feel much more comfortable about being able to talk to the media but they also understand the psychological benefits and risks of working with the media and so how to mitigate them to make themselves feel really comfortable. I love that. So, and, and um, Josie, just, just wrapping up with the last couple of questions then, do you have a mantra to focus? I do. So, so my thing around mantras is they have to kind of get you in the stomach. They have to make you a little bit emotional. So my mantra is make Hattie proud. Um, And Hattie's my little three-year-old. And I know that whatever I try and teach her in life, one of those big lessons will be that you don't quit when it gets tough. That if something mattered to you enough to start out on that journey, that you really push it until you see how far you can go. And I really want her to believe that. And so that kind of extends into my running and my sport and everything I do, really, that I don't want to let her down. And it's certainly worked a couple of times when I've been in, say, running races and was really not feeling it that day. And I could it was lapped, so I could see my bag sitting there and I thought, I could just stop right now. But if I repeat enough, make Hattie proud, make Hattie proud, that means there's no way I'm going to stop and let her see that mummy gives up when it gets a bit tough. That's got to get you in the stomach, but that's, that got me on the goosebumps, that did. So um, that's equally our transformational purpose around creating a brighter future for our children and that deep family driver is so powerful isn't oh, it massively every 
Every mantra I've heard that really works is one that gets you in the tummy. I heard, I remember Greg Searle and Ed Coe telling me about the Olympic final in 2000. They were leading the final for most of the race. This is the coxless pairs. And they had a final, but they actually went from first to fourth in about the space of a minute. Uh, came forth on the day and they, they had a last push. Let's push for gold. That was their that was their last call. And the French pair, who went from fourth to first, <laughs> had a had a call, let's do this for our families. <laughs> and, uh, and and when they heard that that was their call, they just thought, no wonder we lost. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really powerful. Wonderful. I love that. So uh, nearly last question, penultimate question. Uh, what one key lesson would you tell yourself from 15 years ago? So if you could go back in time, what message would you share with your younger self? It sounds a bit counterintuitive, but actually probably to slow down. So I had a boss years ago who told me I wasn't ambitious and it absolutely infuriated me because I knew I was ambitious. I think the issue was I just didn't know what I was ambitious for so I, I really wanted to succeed. And I was always kind of working 100 miles an hour to try and do that. But I'm not sure what I was trying to succeed for. I didn't necessarily, as we just talked about, I don't think I had that purpose of what I really wanted to do. And I think that's always really hard when you work for somebody else because you, you're not always going to be bought into the values that they have. Whereas when you work for yourself, it's much easier to know your values, your purpose for your organisation and why you want to do it. But I, it, it really makes me think... Back then, I was just trying to rush through life to, I guess, try and find what that value and purpose was. And I kind of missed lots of fun along the way. I missed enjoying things. I missed celebrating some of our successes because I was so busy trying to get on to the next thing. I kind of forgot to look back and relish some of the great stuff that happened along the way. So I guess my lesson would be kind of slow down and enjoy it a bit more. Uh, so that it's not so much the patience part of it, it's the journey and the process and, and soaking it in as opposed to it being relentless and so fast as an experience that you, d- you don't really remember what happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And I just feel you miss out on on that journey. And it's only when you've got that space to reflect and look back that you realise how much you did learn along the way. And when I'm working with people now and you start to think, well, where did this idea come from? It might well have been something that was 15, 20 years ago. And actually it taught you a huge amount. But you were so busy trying to rush on to the next thing. I didn't get the time to actually reflect or do any analysis then and there to realise how momentous certain things were. So what's next for you? You've been on this incredible journey yourself. What's next? Um... So a couple of big things. Lots of the athletes I work with are in the endurance world. And so eating disorders and difficulties around food and exercise addiction can be quite prevalent. So I'm going to be looking to do um, some studying in exercise and kind of food disorders. So I've, I've booked in lots of training around that so that I can be much more helpful to my athletes. And then I'm also writing a book on the psychology of exercise, which is not an area I've done masses of research in before. Um, but I've just started the second chapter in it. 
And actually, I'm finding it fascinating. So it's I'm learning masses and we're writing it in a way that it's around life stages so that a health professional could pick up the book and say they're working with children. They would be able to use this for how do I do evidence-based, really good practical interventions with children to help improve the amount of exercise they do. So hopefully it should be a really valuable book. Sounds incredible, that translation of fundamental principles, but to a wider audience and a bigger need than perhaps the professional Ironman triathlete with a super duper bike. Absolutely. And I think that's what I love around the writing side is turning something that's been incredibly well studied and evidence based, but it's sitting in a journal that's locked away and most of us don't have access to journals and trying to turn that into something that can actually be used, whether it is an elite level athlete or whether it's somebody trying to do their first park run. Josie, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation and and I I love the the sense of bravery that you've talked through and the the curiosity about following your nose and your instinct and having the guts to 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 chase those those ideas and dreams and equally the fusion of the communication and psychology. I think that's invaluable for people to hear. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely to chat. You can follow Josie on Twitter at Josephine Perry and you can look up her website performanceinmind.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram under supporting champions and subscribe through the website for the latest updates. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, it'd be great if you could leave a review on iTunes. 